You are listening to episode nine of the So Driven podcast. Our guest today is going through an extremely exciting time in her life and career. Leila Moran is one of two candidates up for leadership of the Liberal Democrats in the United Kingdom. I managed to get some limited and very precious time with her this week to talk less about her politics and more about her as a person. At the time of recording this podcast, the ballots are open with less than a week to go before we know who will lead the party. It was an extremely exciting time for me to speak to Leila because in a sense, it's almost like delving into the mind of an athlete before they race in the Olympics. Unless you have been there yourself, it's almost impossible to relate. But even though the stakes are high for Layla, her account of where she's at, she articulates well and just portrays a level of strength in her calm and uplifting persona. It doesn't surprise me at all that she is in the position in her career that she's in now. This is Layla's story. You are listening to the So Driven Podcast with me, your host, Serena Dodd. Each week, we will dive deep into the inner workings of leaders. We will talk about their story, their challenges, their triumphs, and ultimately what drives that quest for success. Wanting to listen to a corporate type of approach to leadership? I'm afraid you're in the wrong place. Here, we like to be raw, a bit silly, progressive, and 100% unconventional. <laughs> this is my first face-to-face podcast that I've We done. are socially distanced, everybody, yes. don't you worry. Totally socially distanced, at least 20 metres apart. Yeah. <laughs> but this is going to be a slightly different interview for you because we're not really going to touch too much on politics. I just wanted to get to know you more as a person, but I cannot start this conversation without discussing what an exciting time this is for you at the moment. Oh, it's insane. So for anyone out there who is wanting to know more about you or who you are, where are you at at the moment? Well, we are in the middle of the Liberal Democrat leadership election. Uh, We will get the results, I think, the day after this podcast is released, actually. So there'll be lots of people who will listen to this knowing the result. (laughs) Um, But I don't. And uh, it's me uh, going for it against uh, a gentleman who's been an MP for a very long time, uh, Sir Edward Davey. Um, A huge amount of respect for him and huge amount of respect for my colleagues. And it took a lot to decide that now was the moment to run. But when Jo Swinson lost her seat in December, it's essentially started from that point. So here we are, it's nearly September now. I feel like we've been on a form of a campaign trail for nine months. We had our final uh, hustings, which is the head-to-heads that you do in front of the membership, all over Zoom, of course, yesterday. And I woke up this morning going, oh my God, it's nearly over. So yeah, I cannot wait for next Thursday. And at this point, I actually don't even care what the result is. I just want to know. (laughs) Yeah, I bet you do. I mean, how has COVID affected your campaign? It's been a completely online campaign. I think it's the first time any political party has elected its leader completely online in the way that we have. Mm. So normally you'd travel the country, you'd have, you know, big rooms full of people and you'd be able to sort of read the crowd. And this is what politicians are good at, right? And it's what I certainly get lots of energy from. And yet it's been all Zoom. And at the beginning, I was doing sort of smaller meetings with local parties or associations. um, And you'd be able to sort of see people at least nodding at the screen or something. Um, But then it all became live streams on YouTube. And so it was just looking at each other's face for 90 minutes. And on Monday, we've got the last one. It's BBC one with Victoria Derbyshire. It's only 20 minutes, but it's the 47th. Wow. Yeah. 
That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so what is it? What does a typical day look like? Are you just literally waking up in the morning, putting on a nice shirt in your tracksuit bottoms? <laughs> I have done some hustings with my tracksuit bottoms and then a nice shirt. That is true. Um, actually, every day has been slightly different. The hustings, once they started, were very much the beating heart and they were mostly in the evening. Although on the weekends, there were t ones where we had three a day. So we'd have sort of one at 11, one at three and another one at seven or 7.30 or whatever it was. Um, you also have to prepare for them. So they're all regionalized. You might have one on a speciality subject. So you then spend an hour, an hour and a half for each one in addition doing that preparation work. Um, and then there's been media, there's been managing the team. Actually, what we've done is we've built a team of several hundred people all doing it for free just for this period of time to run the campaign. And it's everything from getting on the phones to speak to people, to fundraising, to thinking about messaging and brand and making sure that all of that's going right. And actually this is, and I think this is in the context of this podcast, actually the more important thing is when I started, I almost had two goals. And one was, yes, of course, win. But the other was, I just wanna be proud at the end of it, of the team that we've built, the product that we are selling, the way that we've gone about doing this, and I'm definitely there. No matter what is going to happen on Thursday, I'm proud of what we've achieved. I'm proud of what we've put out there. I'm proud of the way that my team has handled itself, how I've come across, how I've managed. I'm, um, I've grown a huge amount in myself. And so that intrinsic motivation for doing it will never go. You can't take that away from me. Yeah. The win may not be mine, but all the rest of it is mine and will stay with me forever. Oh, I've got good vibes going on. So well, <laughs> tell me, what does it feel like for you to wait for these votes to come in? Because it's been, what, it, they've been open for now, what, three weeks? Yeah. And this is the final week. That's right. So ballots opened at the end of July, and it's been four weeks, actually, by the time we get there. Um, it's a special type of Lib Dem hell to have a <laughs> get out the vote, which is the period where people can vote that lasts four weeks long. Normally in an election, it's 24 hours, and then that's basically, or even less, and then that's basically it. Um, so it's, it's really difficult to manage your own emotions, especially as we know it's going to be close, or we think it's going to be close. Um, and at this point, normally, you'd have a sense it's going well, it's not going well. And we're just, we, our data is all over the place and it's really, really difficult to know which way it's going to go. So you have to future-proof yourself to an extent, but also not. Because on the one hand, to prepare to lose, you know, that generates anxiety, that demotivates people. But you have to be prepared for it. So what does that look like? And what I've tried to do is compartmentalise when I'm allowed to think about that. And I have a coach that I speak to about this and actually I found having that dedicated space for an hour a week. Um, and I've also had a therapist throughout this session, uh, this uh, period as well, uh, although they've gone on holiday uh, and <laughs> not time, the best therapist. time. I need them back. Um, but actually the way I manage my own emotions is to like have those times in the week where I am allowed unequivocally to talk about them. And that means that in the rest of the time, I can almost say, okay, I'm gonna save this for Monday or I'm gonna save this for Friday. And you just got to focus on the next thing, like the next day. And that also means when you've got days off, you can focus on that day. And the main thing that you have to do that day is to not think about work. You can have that time off and be really present. So that generating sense of presence and not thinking too, too, too much about what's going to happen next. It has been a really important part of my own resilience and getting through all of this. 
it allows you to at least rest. It must be one of the hardest things that you have to do because I know how passionate you are about your party, about what you do. It must be so hard to switch off on a day off, on the rare day that you have off. No, well, I just think in reality, I haven't really had much of a day off no. since the last election. Um, and then COVID, of course, hit in between. So the job of the constituency MP got enormous. Um, my post bag trebled in the that weekend that we went into lockdown because people were just so distraught about their jobs, their health, their worry, their anxiety. And your job is to be there for them and to signpost them. And you might not know a lot, but you do know a bit more than most people. Yeah. Um, and so that, managing all of that on top of everything else that's been happening, I'm chairing an inquiry into coronavirus in Parliament. And again, that was that just needed to happen. So I've got this sort of stuff that I'm doing for my career, which is running for the leadership of the Lib Dems, but in a funny way, all the other rest of the day job and all the other important stuff that I would have been doing anyway has to continue because it's too important for it not to. Like, unless we get on top of what's been going wrong and unless I can help people now, before a second wave, where we can avert it, all those young people that have been so, so caught up in this fiasco of A-levels and GCSEs, all of that's just happening immediately. So that needs your attention. So I haven't really had that much time off. On the days that I am free, I do try and do something a bit different and that allows the mind to clear a bit. So just by positively thinking about something else, your subconscious brain kicks in. And what I always find actually is if I'm stuck with an intractable problem or I'm having an issue in you know, either a part of their campaign or it's someone I'm not getting on with and I just don't know my way through, purposefully trying to not think about it, very often the answer comes later. Yeah. And recognizing that emotions are temporary. And, you know, you may be feeling this anxious way now, but if you allow yourself to move through it and you know that it's going to end, well, even though you're right in the middle of it, that can be a really powerful thing to be able to say to yourself. Like, you've been here before, you know you get through it, you know it's not forever. You know, sit with it, be with it, know what it is, name it, yes. and then actually it tends to go away faster. And this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key thing. You mentioned earlier about you're chairing the cross-party inquiry yeah. for investigating how the government handled the coronavirus. How did that come about? Well, that was really interesting. So I have... I, I have huh, it's going to come out wrong, but you'll understand. I'm a scientist. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. <laughs> like, I'm finding the whole of coronavirus and the way that this teeny tiny microorganism has now completely changed. Look at us, our, us big humans that have messed up our planet with the way that we've conducted ourselves. And yet we have been shut down by a virus. And I found it fascinating how the whole thing has unfolded, how people just didn't understand exponential growth. Um, I remember being there in Parliament um, talking about the maths of this. And people just didn't really believe it was a thing. So the whole thing, I've just been fascinated by a scientific point of view. And then the human story started to hit. And my empathetic side just went haywire because actually, yes, on the one hand, it is scientifically fascinating. On the other, it's just insane what it has done to society and, and who's going to benefit and who's not going to benefit from it and these big societal issues. So actually, it has been, in a way, for me, on a personal level, just a really interesting intellectual time. And I was contacted by March for Change, who are the uh, many of the same people who were behind the People's Vote campaign. And actually, a lot of them are scientists. 
Um, and so, you know, this is kind of a separate thing, but they knew that I was also scientific, that I was really interested in this. I'd been making a lot of noise about it for a while and they could see that I was on the right track. They wanted to do something that was really concrete. They'd been working with Independent Sage, which is the sort of shadow scientific group that is also giving out recommendations and looking at the science and looking at um, all the different ways that you could be handling this. And they'd come together and said, we want to do something. So they approached me and go, well, what do you reckon? Do you want to chair this? And I was like, yes, absolutely. Um, and it plays to one of the things that I think I'm really good at, which is cross-party working. Um, and I believe in cross-party working actually as a way of working. I think it's really rewarding. It's a great way to build consensus at a time when you know, we are a country that you could also argue, like others, has been eaten up by the last few years. I mean, identity politics, us versus them. Actually, I saw a big opportunity in coronavirus to bring people together against this common foe, which is a virus and, you know, therefore doesn't have a political affiliation. Yeah. Um, and so we started this inquiry. We've been taking evidence all through the summer and we released our first recommendations last Friday. And I'm really proud of it. I hope through it. You know, we've managed to raise some voices of people who had been feeling really forgotten. So particularly bereaved families, yeah. um, but also people who are suffering from a thing called long COVID, um, which is young people, actually. So our age and younger, even children, which is really, really concerning. And they have coronavirus, often in sort of a mild to moderate way, which makes it sound like it's nice. It's not. This is not a mild cold. This is still a really bad thing. It just means you don't have to go on a ventilator. You don't have to necessarily... Uh, go into hospital although some did and then the symptoms last with you for months and so it's almost a new disability and people had completely forgotten that these people are around and we need to learn what's happening to them we need to adapt to them and i don't think without our inquiry their voice would have been heard in the way it has you know it's really refreshing to talk to you about this because there are so many people out there who have suffered either with the coronavirus or have been affected with it by a loved one and honestly, they just don't care about the politics behind it. They just want to have someone who's got the platform to be a voice to lead from a human perspective. I believe that, you know, society understands that there is no magic pill out there that to create a perfect environment when a pandemic comes along. But what they lose patience with is that sort of push and pull blame game that we see so much across the media. Like people like David Davis are on the APPG and I hope they're gonna get sort of more involved um, as we come back in September. But I think it's just interesting that you, you would not think that a politician like him and a politician like me would be on the same side of this kind of thing, but actually we absolutely are. and. We aren't interested in the blame game. At some point, there is going to be a public inquiry. It's going to be judge-led. They're going to be able to haul people in front of them under oath and get them to say, yes, I made this decision. No, I didn't make justify themselves. And at that point, you know, that's when the blame will be attributed. I'm interested in saving lives. I'm interested in, we've got a number of weeks before schools are meant to be going back, a potential second wave. You know, huge numbers of people die every year from winter flu. Um, what do we need to do to make sure that we understand as best we can what we need to do to avoid that? Yeah, no, completely agree. Do you see us getting back to normal anytime soon? No. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I mean, I think... For anyone who's got any hope out there, that's I'm really, just well, smashed. I mean, I think there's going to be... I, I, I estimate, actually, we're looking at a four or five year 
roll over on this because yes there will be a vaccine and i'm really you know i'm an oxford mp and i'm really proud that actually it's the oxford vaccine group and the jenner institute yes. come on sarah gilbert and others and you know it might be theirs um but just look at what's happened with a levels just look at what's happened with gcses the pass rate if you pass or fail a gcse that has effects on a young person's life forever because that could be a determinant as to either, not just if you go on to fe college or a levels or whatever else but actually in future jobs how many jobs do you look at that say you need a pass in gcse maths and english it this is going to have repercussions i think for a long long time it's definitely taken its toll in so many ways i want to just segue a little bit mm -hmm. into you and I think with a lot of people, especially a lot of my listeners, I bring in guests and I like to talk to my guests about how they started. How did you start? What was it that made you want to get into politics? Well, I'll start by saying I'm a really unusual politician in the way that this happened. And uh, there is no formula for this, I think. But my the way the way it happened for me, I've never heard anyone else do it in the same way. I was not at all interested in politics when I was younger. You can attest to this, Serena. Yes. Serena and I, for those who are listening, have been friends for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. And whilst you know, I've been interested in sort of the way the world works, and but actually at school I was more of a science buff. That's what I really loved. I went on and did um, physics at Imperial. I then became a teacher, and it was through teaching that I started to become aware of politics at a country level, and in particular in this country. We'd moved around a lot as a child. My dad was a diplomat and my mum's Palestinian. And so it, I just didn't really feel like British party political politics was something that was for me. And it wasn't really until I did a master's in comparative education and I was looking at why different countries have different systems. And I'd also uh, gone and lived in many countries and done many different systems. So actually it was quite a personal question for me, which one's best? It was a very naive question with no easy answer. And through that worked out and understood and researched inequality in our country and the fact that there are kids born today whose path in life is very often more likely set by the amount of money that their parents have rather than the content of their own character. And that's not the same everywhere. There are countries that do this much better that don't have such a strong link. So then the question is, well, why is there such a strong link? And immediately at that point, you start looking at the rest of society. And these children are just a product of all of these other factors that surround them. And it got me really angry. <laughs> it got me really angry because there's, it's just, that's frankly not fair. Yeah. You know, it shouldn't matter. In this country, we're a rich country. It shouldn't matter where in the country you're born. It shouldn't matter how much money your parents have or how educated they were. A child surely should be able to be able to achieve their potential. And yet that's not the case in this country and it has never really been, at least for a very, very long time. Um, and I had two choices at that point. Very international background, could have so easily upsticked and left the country. <laughs> but I chose to stay and I chose to stay and try and do something about it and decided that I was going to be an MP because if you're going to affect education policy, then you do it from that level because so much of it is centralized in this country. And then I chose my party. So most people would have a sort of party affiliation first and then come at it from that way. And they might be just interested in politics generally. For me, it was very much about that single issue of education. And then I picked the party based on which party's policies were already the best in that area and compared it to the research and for that it was the Lib Dems 
But actually, then, then when I looked into it, the values that they spoke about, and there's this part of our constitution that talks about ensuring that every individual is free from ignorance, poverty and conformity, which totally like chimed with the way that I see the world anyway. Um, and so it was probably no wonder that their policy was closest to what the research was saying, because actually we're also a very evidence-based party. Um, and yeah, and so then I had this great idea and I remember it, I was in bed, and I looked up at this wall, I can't remember what was on the wall, and just had this realisation that's like, wow. It's like that scene in Alice in Wonderland where she's in the dark and all of a sudden the pathway starts turning into arrows. And I had this image in my head and that's what it felt like. It was like everything that just didn't make sense in my life up until this point that's been pointing in this direction. And this is, it's what I had to do. And I, I don't really know how to describe it other than anything other than I had no choice almost. It felt like there was just this intense compulsion. And then I started on the journey from there and it has been, you know, a tortuous journey. It's certainly not been one that's been smooth sailing every time. Um, I remember speaking to my grandfather about me wanting to get serious about politics and he's since passed away sadly so he never saw me get elected oh, um, but he said well you better get used to failure then <laughs> because to be a politician is about failure yeah. and most people who get into this kind of line of work if they ever get it to the point where you get paid for it most people don't it's about failure after failure after failure after failure every single person that I've spoken to and, and when you look into leadership and speak to someone who has had a real success in their career you ask them, knowing what you know now and going back, would you do it all again? And they're like, no way! <laughs> I think there's a level of naivety that's brilliant to go into something that you're really passionate about and knowing that actually success is born out of a pile of failures. Yeah. And um, it's becoming resilient to those failures yeah. and just being able to kind of push through those barriers, which 99% of people are not able to. Absolutely. And I think, you know, certainly in the context of politics, it is helpful that I'm a teacher, right? So if I don't get that job and I can't be in politics, there will always be a space for a physics teacher. Um, but that comes off the back of being well-educated and coming from a family that was able to support me. And if it all went horribly Tong, then you know probably I would have the support of my parents if I needed to pay the rent there are lots and lots of people who just don't have those safety nets and just can't take those kinds of risks so that's partly one of my motivators for why I do it I want everyone to be able to take those risks but it's naive to think that you know everyone can some people just can't they've got other barriers that preclude them from being able to do it and it's easier um, for some compared to others but you've got to get used to failing. I don't think there is a single politician that I know. And actually, Nick Clegg may well have been the exception to this. I think for most of the elections Nick Clegg went for, he won. Um, most of the elections still that I've ever gone for, I've lost. And so if I lose on Thursday, I know this feeling. I know I will survive. Um, the first time I lost, I was a wreck. I was an absolute wreck. And that's not to say I'm not going to cry on Thursday. I most definitely am, probably one way or the other. Um, but the first time that I lost, I will never forget it. And it just, it felt like, because politics is quite personal. People are judging you almost more than any other job interview. It really is about you. They're also talking about your character. People make insinuations about, oh, you're not married yet. When are you going to have kids? Which, by the way, is against the Equality Act, but people do ask it. Yeah. Um, and they feel like they've got that sort of sense of ownership of you. So when they then reject you, 
it feels really personal in a way that I've never experienced with any other kind of job interview. And the first time was just devastating. And here we are 13 years later uh, for the first time that I was rejected. And I'm still trying to get, <laughs> well, not rejected, but still trying to push through, but I'm still expecting rejection. And one day I will probably face the ultimate rejection, which is that I, might, I may well lose my seat. Mm. And my seat is not secure. This is not a secure job. And I know that, and I've got to live with that. Do you think it's because of the amount of times that you have failed that you have built up a level of resilience? 100%. Yeah. 100%. And actually, I don't... You can try and future-proof yourself and try and imagine what it might be like to fail at such things. But you've just got to go through those experiences. And actually, the hardest bit is deciding that you're going to do it. And it, the hardest bit of all, and this is kind of where I am now, because we just don't know which way it's going to go on Thursday. And Serena and I spoke last week when we were hatching up this plan that I was going to come on here. And <laughs> she gave some brilliant advice, which is you might as well pretend you're winning. Because <laughs> actually that is a motivator. It makes you in a positive frame of mind. And if you then lose, you can cope with that afterwards. You can't, if I'm going to be sad about losing now, all that's going to happen is that I'm going to become anxious. I'm going to become sad. I'm not going to be the leader I need to be to motivate the rest of my team. So I might as well put myself in that winning mindset now. And by feeling sad about a future loss that hasn't happened yet, you're not going to stop yourself from feeling sad then. So you're just doubling the amount of time that you're going to be feeling sad. So I might as well feel happy now. I mean, you are the, you're the first British Palestinian member of parliament. What does that mean to you? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I... Whilst I'm really proud of my Arab heritage and uh, mum's Palestinian, comes from a long line of uh, Christian family from Jerusalem and a huge part of my family life and culture, love cooking Arabic food. My first word was Arabic, um, but actually now I don't speak any. <laughs> you know, can sort of sound it out phonetically and don't really understand it when I'm reading it. And so actually to be defined that way was actually more something that other people did to me. Um, and I started noticing it because, you know, when you get a new crop of intake of MPs, people are like, oh, she's the first this. And I didn't even realise. I didn't even really think about it. Um, but yeah, it's become, it's interesting how other people's perceptions of you become part of your brand. Like people just sort of project things on you. Yes. Well, I didn't even think no. about it. Someone said, oh, you know, she, she's the first British Palestinian. I'm like, is she? That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that is, that's great. Exactly. <laughs> I think, you know, it's maybe a signal about how Parliament is becoming a bit more diverse in general. And maybe that is a sign that society is more accepting and more tolerant of people who have slightly more different backgrounds. Yeah. So that's why it's something perhaps to celebrate. Um, I still want to see more women though in Parliament. I mean, the fact that we're, I think it's 34% this Parliament, up from 33 in the last Parliament. I mean, my goodness me. Um, that's a more important thing to be aiming for in my view. Like 50-50 Parliament has to be the goal um, because how on earth when there's 52% of the population that, who are female, uh, that not be represented by the chamber in our politics that's meant to be speaking out for the common people you know this is the idea yeah. um we, it's still not representative of wider society in so many ways what do you think makes a, a really good politician empathy top of the list is empathy and i dare say and i still see it and i'm not going to name names but there are still some sort of very old school politicians who you can see are there because they love it 
They love it. They love the title. They love Westminster. They love the old Gothic columns. And I've probably got the architectural period wrong, but this is the point. Like, I just don't care about the buildings. I care about the people and the people that I want to serve and the people of the country who I don't yet serve, but maybe can positively change their lives. And apparently that makes me progressive. <laughs> When actually, I would argue that my definition of what being a good politician is and the way that I approach it, which is much less about state, my status, my status, I'm a servant of the people. I'm really clear about that in my own mind. My job is to serve them. And that is the undercurrent that runs through everything that I do, the way that I interact with people, even people who will write in, you know, horrible things in my inbox, they pay my salary. And actually, you know, I, my job is to stand up for uh, why I've done something and they have, but they have every right to try and hold me to account. And I in turn have a right to try and hold the government to account so that that's making their lives the best. And if it, if you lose sight of who pays your salary, of why you're there, then actually people deserve to be voted out. Now, unfortunately we have a system it's called first past the post for winner takes all system in the UK, which means that in a lot of places that doesn't happen. And you can have an MP who's just in it for the pomp and the circumstance and the whatever and do awful things and yet will still remain an MP. And that level of accountability, I think, has partly led to lots of people feeling that they are out of touch and that politicians have now apparently overtaken estate agents in terms of untrustworthiness. Um, and we don't do ourselves any favours either. I think we need to root and branch change the way that we do politics uh, in this country. You mentioned sort of like the old tradition stuff. Was there anything when you got into Parliament that happened to you that was quite an old tradition that you thought, God, no one talks about this. This is weird. Oh, I'll tell you the weirdest one of all. Um, and I'm not that religious, really. Um, I like going to church for weddings and Christmas or whatever and um, I probably would say some people I have in the past described myself as humanist but or maybe agnostic I was chapel prefect at school and I loved it mainly because I was in the choir and I like to be able to change the hymn numbers like <laughs> so I, I get it and I have a respect for it but it wasn't until I got to parliament and in order to do your job as in on days like Prime Minister's Questions, you have to put in a little card on the bench to reserve your seat. And in order to reserve your seat, you have to go in before Parliament starts. And what happens before Parliament starts is three minutes of prayer. So the bell rings, prayers, and then there's this pr a procession of the speaker with like this big golden thing. Um, and you have to be at your seat with this little prayer card behind you. You stand up, they come in, bow, they walk forward, bow, put down the, the golden sceptery thing. They then walk across and then the prayers begin. And they are old school prayers and everyone's standing up and halfway through you like turn round. And the first few times that I did it, I was just, I, honestly, I was like, what is going on? I just don't believe that I have to do this. And then one of my colleagues sat down during prayers and actually that's what I now do. So if I have to do it, I will sit down during. I just find it a bit hypocritical. Mm. I don't pray in that way. Um, it's not a part of my, the way that I feel I need to do my job. If other people want to pray, by all means do, but I don't see why I have to pray in order to reserve my seat so that I can then speak on behalf of my constituents who have put, elected me there. I find that just bizarre.
I mean, I've never heard of that. I mean, one thing that we've spoken about in the past is writing notes. Yes. Which I thought was so fun. It's so old school. Yes. So when I, when I, yeah, when I was very first elected and sadly it's kind of died off because of COVID now, no one's really doing it anymore. But I think it's also because politicians are inherently very paranoid and don't always just shoot off emails. Um, and they send little handwritten notes to each other. So I kept, I'd be doing my maiden speech or, you know, doing my first words into a hall speech. Um, and then someone would just write me a little note, you know, really lovely speech, well done, X or whatever their name is. And it's like, oh my God, they've written this with a pen. <laughs> <laughs> no one does that anymore. Amazing, amazing, I love that. Leila, we're getting close to the end, but I do want to talk to you about leadership. I mean, everything that you've spoken about is in a sense leadership, but what do you feel it means to be a great leader? For me, it's about, first of all, being clear about where you're going. I think the job of the leader is to be the one to have scanned the horizon and maybe you need help with people showing you what that may look like, but actually to set that overall vision and ethos, you know, where are you going and how are you going to get there? But the detail of it needs to be something that's empowered out to the people around you. So I think an equally important part of being a leader is getting everyone else around you to be the best that they can be. So it's putting the teams together, it's creating a culture where people feel it's okay to make a mistake. That's a really important part of the way I lead. Um, making them see that you are human too, and actually being quite clear with them and yourself about the downtime that you need to take if you need it, because actually if you don't do that, everyone burns out. Um, being really clear about how it's okay to treat people or not, making sure that you thank people, all of that stuff's mega important but also giving yourself the time and the space to not be in the weeds too much, because actually what a leader is often most useful at doing is setting that overall direction. And unless you give yourself the headspace and the breathing space to be able to just do that level of reflection all the time, then you risk making an error. And the biggest errors are, are strategic very often. You can usually dig yourself out of a tactical hole, but if you've got the strategy wrong, then your toast. Um, and for politics, what that means for me is more than at any other time, and this is actually bluntly where I think the Lib Dems have been going wrong for the last 10 years, is we have become disconnected from our voters, from all voters, our customers. If you were someone running an organisation and you had something you wanted to sell, you know, marketing 101 is know your audience, know who you are trying to reach, understand them, what do they do every day, what do they really care about? Actually, that I think is the most important thing for the Lib Dem leader, whoever ends up winning on Thursday, that's what they need to do is to reconnect and listen again to those voters. Do you think your your understanding and your practice of leadership has changed throughout your time of being an MP? 100%. Um, I think, well, most of it, to be honest, was set from before because I'd been a teacher, head of year, I'd always managed teams. I then uh, was part of a senior leadership uh, role in a social enterprise and that involved managing uh, hundreds of students and hundreds of teachers and that was again another time that I was able to step that up. Then being an MP, that was the first time that, and it's very entrepreneurial, I was running three offices and trying to get all these sort of different arms of the organisation to work seamlessly with each other, that was a real challenge. So every year I'm improving as a leader. And I'm relatively young, I'm 37. If I end up taking on this role or who knows what the future will bring, 
I know that with experience will come uh, more understanding of my own leadership style. But actually, I think the most important lesson I've learned so far is that everyone has their own leadership style. And yes, you can learn sort of the building blocks, the basics of it. You will listen to podcasts like this. You will buy books. But in the end, all of it needs to be synthesized into something that works for you in that moment, in that organization that you're in. It will be different for everybody. Um, it's really valuable to be able to reflect. It's really valuable to be able to accept challenge. I know I'm doing something wrong as a leader. If everyone in the room agrees with me, there is something deeply concerning about that situation. Um, because actually what you need is advisors who are able to challenge you and able to question you because under that questioning that will help you to come up with what the right answer is um, but every year it's going to change and I'm all I'm certain that should I win on Thursday I will then be a different leader in five years after that I'm sure because the organization hopefully will have changed hopefully for the better um, I will have grown up in it in that role the first couple of years of any leadership role whatever it is is a, is a time to sort of understand where you are and and then as you start to change yourself and change the organization uh, you end up in a different space so the growth mindset that actually i bring with me as something i used to teach my students as a teacher you might be doing it but can you do it better or if you can't do it what you mean by that is you can't do it yet i think it's that mind frame that is so valuable and so I'm not really that scared for what the future is going to bring because I know that I have the skills to be able to navigate that and actually the best skill I've got is to be nimble and recognize that it's going to change over time. I don't need the answers now. What I have are the skills to know that when I need the answers I will be able to get them when I need them. I love that and the level of understanding that you have of yourself I'm sure brings a lot of reassurance to your constituents and the team that you have working with you on your campaign. I've just got a few fun facts, <laughs> fun questions for Leila Moran. Um, are you ready? Yes. I've actually had to change them because I say this in all my, it, like in the past couple of podcasts because I think I'm asking fun questions and actually they're real thinkers. So um, something that I think is going to happen really quickly doesn't really happen that quickly at all. So I've changed them around for you. And um, although I think one you'll be like, oh, I don't know. Um, we will, you'll know, but you'll be like, oh, what should I, uh, what should I, I say? Give, what should I, shall I lie or not? <laughs> um, okay, tea or coffee? Well, I'm drinking tea, so let's say tea. All right, tea. This is the one. Favourite non-fictional book? Non-fictional book? Yeah. The one that immediately came to mind was actually my great-grandfather's diaries. Oh, okay. Which were published. His name was Wasif Jahuria. They're called The Storyteller of Jerusalem. And they were a first-person account of what it was like in uh, Jerusalem in the early 1900s that was never meant to be published, um, oh, but that we had translated. And, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, so that wasn't really that hard a question. I've asked people this before, and I'm like, oh, come on. Time <laughs> um, three people who inspire you. My mother, 100%, uh, who is absolutely loving this campaign. She's hilarious. She, she's such a people person. She's just on the phone all the time. Gone. And I keep saying to her, don't tell them you're my mother. But she keeps ignoring me. It says she's insisting that it's the right thing to do. Um, politically, um, I've always been really inspired by other female politicians. Uh, one that I think is doing an incredible job right now is Jacinda Ardern um, yeah, from New Zealand. And just the way that she has navigated that right now. I think they're going through an election now, so who knows, hopefully she'll still be uh, the Prime Minister, but I think she has shown people that you can be a young female leader and kick ass, um, which was pretty cool. Um, and I think from history, 
Oh, no. It's really hard, actually, to have three. I was really inspired by Nelson Mandela when I was growing up. Um, and I remember uh, reading his book and listening about his story. And yes, small c, saw p political, but actually more about resilient character. And he always just came across as so sage and so wise and so calm. And that sort of calm resilience, I really admire him. Um, you're on a desert island. Food and water are taken care of. What two items must you have? My cat, <laughs> who went to the vet this morning, was not happy about it at all. Um, and probably maybe my guitar. Um, and I'm not very good, uh, <laughs> but I love music. And so being able to have something to play on and actually maybe this is the moment where I'm finally going to get really good. <laughs> this one, forget COVID, yeah. I'm on the island with nothing around me. <laughs> no Zoom, no, no. nothing. Um, what did you want to be when you were 10? When I was 10, I think I wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah. Okay. Describe yourself in three words. Christ. <laughs> oh my God, you do it. <laughs> Empathetic. Uh-huh. Uh, generous. Um, and oh, what else? I mean, there are so many. Exactly. It's Good like, humoured. Thank you. I think, that's the, I think that's four, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go with I, that. There's a hyphen, I think. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, your mission in life is? To bring out the best in the people around me and Layla what has being so driven given you a chance to hang out with you Serena <laughs> <laughs> good good I, do you know what you don't need to say anymore we're, 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 we're good with that it'll probably be the one and only time that question has been answered like that so I'm, I'm Layla I'm so excited for you and I, I just love how we've managed to grab you and talk to you on a more personal level before everything kicks off um, I'm excited for your potential win on Thursday and um, yeah good luck with everything. Thank you so much for having me uh, it's been really enjoyable. What a time for Layla this is. I do often wonder when I think about anyone who might be in her position what goes through their mind at a point where there is a pretty distinct fork in the road whether that's a role for a big job like Layla's or an actor wanting to hear back if he or she has got the lead role in the next big film or television series or an athlete racing to qualify for the Olympics. The amount of focus and drive that has led to that point can be completely overwhelming and overpowering at points. But like most people who lead or train or or even get coached, their mindset is of such, just like Layla talks about, that they focus on the present at all times. So just from our conversation today, I do have some summary points. So firstly, just as I mentioned really, and just, just covering that in a little bit more detail, when under pressure like Layla, it's important to focus on the present and look to the next thing when needed, but not to get too bogged down in what the future holds. Very similar message actually to what we've heard before in, on this podcast by professional ex-cricketer Luke Sutton, focusing on doing the next right thing, but actually... This is in slightly different context. When you are a leader or you're under pressure in any capacity, understanding what's ahead is a great form of guidance and great for perspective. But to be present in the moment, to be concentrating on the job at hand, to be gearing your mind to do the next right thing is the difference between strength and longevity and burnout. Having that time that Layla sets aside each week just to reflect on that and remind herself on what is important is invaluable to her being present and focused to her team, 
to the people around her on a daily basis and that is why she has managed to keep going in the way that she has. Secondly, and I really like this point, Layla has an openness and honesty to really understanding rejection. You don't often get that with politicians or for leaders for that matter. It's what I believe makes her resilient and strong as a leader, but actually more importantly as a human. Often when we look at our leaders, there is that level of admiration. And if you are in that camp of looking up to someone, then almost dangerously, we forget that they are human like us and have flaws. What we see when they're riding those highs at the top of their wave almost always hasn't been like that for them their whole lives. They will have had failures. Success, as I've said before on this podcast, is really born out of a pile of failures, including rejection. The difference is good leaders understand that and build up their resilience to keep going. The way that Layla articulates rejection and understands it's it only makes her stronger and more relatable as a leader. Number three, at this point is slightly more political, but it was still relevant anyway. Layla understands that she is a servant of the people. I love how she talks about empathy. She has a real understanding of the rights to people's opinions and whether backing her or sending her objectionable emails holding her to account, she welcomes the communication and understands absolutely that her job is for the people, by the people and holds the right to hold the government to account too. Number four, three things that Layla mentions that makes a good leader in her mind. As a leader, you need to be clear about where you're going and how you're going to get there. But the detail needs to be empowered out. I love the way that Layla says that. No one's ever quite mentioned it like that before. Equally important is getting everyone around you to be the best that they can be, putting teams together, creating a culture where importantly, people feel it's okay to make a mistake, making everyone see that you're human too, getting people to treat others like they would like to be treated and thanking people. Really, it's that simple. Making sure that you give yourself also that time and space to, as Layla puts it, to not be too much into the weeds. Because first and foremost, you are the leader and you need to set that direction. And unless you have that breathing space, then you risk making an error. It's important to understand leadership as ever moving and ever growing. What you might respond to when you first are in that leadership role, in whatever capacity it is, will be most likely very different to how you would react after 20 years of leadership under your belt. So finally, what you need as a leader in order to make the most sound decision is a team around you, challenging you, challenging your decisions, questioning you, and even understanding that what they are collectively doing is aiding you to get it as right as it can be. I think that's quite difficult for a lot of leaders. Um, I know I've been there too. You, You come up with a decision yourself, you present it to your team, and essentially you all just want them to agree with you. And of course, when they don't, you can get easily defensive. So having that ability and having that skill and having that experience that you know that the team around you are supporting you in the best way by challenging you makes you create much better decisions for the future. I will leave you on that note. Thank you and good luck to Layla Moran. My fingers are crossed for you, girl. If you want to find out more about Layla, head on over to my podcast site. That's www.serenadodd.com forward slash podcast, www.serenadodd.com 
forward slash podcast. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcast where you can rate and review. As always, I will pick one reviewer each week to have a one-on-one goal setting session with me to create a blueprint of the best way to reach your goals within 30 days. So rate and review. When you have done that, let me know by clicking the Ask Serena button on my website. Let me know that you've rated and reviewed the podcast and I will add you to the draw. In the meantime, I hope you are taking lead of your day and making it so driven. (laughs) 